Welcome back to the Search for Ithaca, a journey through the classics, the podcast that explores and discusses the great works of classical literature and attempt to unveil the truths of humanity containing the texts that have most changed the course of civilization. Welcome back. In today's episode, we are going to discuss book four of the Odyssey, where Telemachus is coming to the second stage of his journey in order to learn about his father, about Odysseus. So as you might remember, well, hopefully you do, um, Telemachus set out in this journey, um, prompted by the advice of Athena, in order to figure out what uh, what is going on with Odysseus, so that if Odysseus is dead, he would give Penelope into marriage to one of the suitors, and if he's alive, then Telemachus would wait for one year, and if his father does not make it home, then he would give Penelope into marriage anyways. So he set out in order to ask um, Odysseus's friends or, or people that were with him in the Trojan War in order to figure out what happened to his father while coming back. So the first attempt was with Nestor at Pylos, as, as told in book three, we already discussed this, and now he's coming to the king of Sparta. Sparta indeed is the famous Sparta, the one that you might see in Hollywood movies, the one that is famous in the classical era, not now, of course, uh, and this is way earlier than that, uh, the, the city that is famous for their military training and military achievements, and, um, and yeah, a very, a very famous and prominent city in Greece during the time of Plato. This is way earlier, we know very little about the history, but the fact of the matter is that Sparta actually existed just like Athens. Athens also existed, um, and, and Argos also existed. In fact, Agamemnon is the king of Argos, and Menelaus is the king of Sparta, and so all these cities do go back uh, a long, long time. And uh, Menelaus is the king of Sparta, and he is the brother of Agamemnon. Uh, this is very important. They are both the children of Atreus. Atreus is a legendary figure, is another hero of of old, of even older than Menelaus and Agamemnon's time. And that is why Menelaus and Agamemnon, sometimes in the Odyssey, they are referred to from, by their patronymic. Uh, they are called the Atreides, Atreides, which basically means son of Atreus. Uh, so in case sometimes they are talking about Menelaus or Agamemnon and it's pretty clear that it's them, but they are still called something weird and that weird thing is Atreides. Just, just so you know, that means that they're simply the sons of Atreus. So Menelaus is the brother of Agamemnon and they were both the leaders of the Greeks in the Trojan War. Why? As I explained before, um, the Trojan War started because Helen got kidnapped and Helen was the most beautiful woman in the world, and she was married to Menelaus. However, uh, as you might remember, the goddesses, some goddesses, Athena, Hera, and Aphrodite, had an argument uh, about which one, uh, who of them was the was the was the fairest, was the most beautiful. And so they they came down from heaven and asked, um, as Paris, Paris was a prince, a prince of Troy, uh, a young handsome man. And they, and they asked him, and he chose Aphrodite, Aphrodite as the most beautiful of the goddesses. However, uh, Aphrodite had promised something, just like the other two goddesses, and what she had promised was, I will give you, Paris, the most beautiful woman in the world. And that is why, we assume, these in the myth, this young man, of course, chooses Aphrodite. But of course, Helen was already married, and in fact was married to Menelaus already. And Helen was already very beautiful before Paris even knew about her. And as I told you before, they, uh, all the suitors that wanted to marry Helen made an alliance, uh, a, a sort of oath, that whoever 
um, whoever gets the honor to marry Helen, everybody else will defend that marriage. Because if not, they realize, well, we're fighting quite hard for her. If, like, whatever happens, there's going to end up being an, a war because everybody wants her. So somebody's going to end up uh, being, an, well, everybody's going to be annoyed except the person who actually gets Helen. So... Uh, so they they decide to make this to make this alliance where where they will protect the marriage of the one that gets chosen by Helen's father, um, and this was Menelaus. However, when 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 Paris takes Helen away with the help of Aphrodite, um, when when she gets kidnapped, of course every other all the other Greeks that all the other kings that wanted Helen now since they swore to protect the marriage between Menelaus and Helen now they need to go to Troy wage the war and bring back Helen to Menelaus. And now we are 20 years after after Helen got kidnapped, so 10 of the Trojan War and 10 of Odysseus coming back. We assume that Menelaus made it back several years earlier than 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 Odysseus. And so um, now when Telemachus comes to Menelaus, we can uh, assume that Menelaus has been home for, for quite a bit already, even though he also had a very hard hum, homecoming. So Helen and Menelaus are at home when Telemachus uh, visits visits uh, their household. And in fact, as we saw in book three, uh, Telemachus is not alone. He comes with Pesistratus, that is the son of Nestor, who was prompted to follow Telemachus uh, by, by his own father. Because, uh, because of what we discussed earlier, how, how they, they could forge a friendship, which is so crucial for their heroic nature, how they can learn from one another, and how they can protect each other. And also how Telemachus embodies Odysseus, and therefore Pesistratus should learn from that image that is imprinted in the nature of Telemachus, inherited from Odysseus. So, that was a quick recap. But right now, Telemachus is coming to Sparta. And many themes are going to come up in this book. It's, it's quite an extensive book, by the way. It's, it's longer than others. But, but hold on, I think, I think it's a great book. I think it's very beautiful. And there are many, many tricky, tricky things in it. So uh, it starts off with a double marriage. So we find that in Sparta, Menelaus is uh, celebrating the marriage of his two children. And who are these two children? There is one boy and one girl. The girl's name is Hermione, just like Hermione Granger in Harry Potter. It's more of a secondary mythological character, but I think it's worth knowing. It also appears in a very famous uh, play by Euripides uh, name, uh, called Andromache. So this is the daughter, Hermione, and the boy, his name is Megapenthes. Now, what's very important is that Hermione is a legitimate daughter of Menelaus and Helen, so it was a daughter of both of them. While Megapenthes is only the the son of Menelaus, together with a slave, with a slave woman, but not a son of Helen. This is very important. So he is essentially a bastard. He is an illegitimate son, or or at least he's um he he doesn't have the the whole noble blood that you might need uh for a prince basically, and, and, and this is a bit dishonorable. Now, what's so interesting is that, is that his father, Menelaus, in, um, in the very name of his son, he expresses the reality of what the son means to him. So, for Menelaus, uh, his son, Megapenthes, is a true Megapenthes. So, Mega means great, means big, and Penthes um, is from Penthos, which means suffering or, or sorrow, um, it's actually related to the word pathos, which I guess people are more familiar with. 
So, um, so megapenthes basically means that the great sorrow, the great pain, the great suffering, which is the vivid uh, embodiment of of Menelaus's life and the reality of his very son. So he was unable to have a legitimate son with Helen. Helen only gave birth to Hermione, and that's it. Uh, nobody else, or at least in the story in Homer. Um, my guess is that there are other myths where, which might include uh, other children from Helen. But here in Homer, Megapenthes is not a the son of Helen, and so uh, since since he is essentially illegitimate and yeah, a, a bastard. Uh, um, so his father gives him this name that uh, I mean, it, it sounds a bit cruel, great sorrow or great pain, because his father is frustrated. Megapenthes is the vivid image of the failure of Menelaus as a father and as a husband and, and as a hero, because it's so crucial for the hero to have a legitimate son, to have a son that that, that passes on that heroic nature, that, that legendary life, that honor. Because as, as we mentioned before, humans are, are mortal. If you didn't know this, welcome, welcome aboard. But um, the heroes try to be immortal. And the way they actually manage to be immortal is through fame through fame and and this fame not only lives on through your own deeds but also through the deeds of your children you want your children to be like you or even better and to be famous so that people remember you just like just like atreus the father of agamemnon and menelaus is still remembered in the patronymic in the in the name of the father when people talk about agamemnon and menelaus but in the case of menelaus uh in particular this is simply not the case because he does not have a legitimate son who could go on to become a great hero because already from his from his birth he is tainted he is a uh, he's impure he's not of royal blood completely because his mother was a slave woman and uh and megapenthes is not the son of helen but only of menelaus but this but this crisis in the family this 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 crisis in the in the identity of menelaus as a hero uh, in his in his heroic journey is is not quite the case with Odysseus, of course, because Odysseus does have a legitimate son. In fact, it's Telemachus, but it is, uh, but it is somehow analogous because also also Odysseus would be worried about the heroic nature of his son. It is very important for the hero himself, for Odysseus, to have a son that will be famous, and so Athena is is actually taking care of this by sending. Telemachus in this journey by making him mature, by making him face society and talk to all these great figures and 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 basically earn a name for himself. So even though Odysseus does have a legitimate son, this worry of having of having a, a good son who could become a hero and pass on your your legends and your fame through these uh, noble deeds and actually live on like you're you will become immortal through history through stories this um this is 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 also present in the life of Odysseus in the story in the story of Telemachus and Odysseus because even though he uh, Telemachus is not a bastard he does need nonetheless to become a hero as well and that is a concern for for Odysseus uh and for Athena and for and for Telemachus himself of course but for Menelaus, it's um, it's more complicated, of course, because he does not have a a son. He basically, he, yeah, he just don't doesn't have a son. So we see him in book four, uh, placing his hopes in Hermione, and this is very interesting because Hermione is actually marrying a great man. He's uh, she is marrying 
a man named Neoptolemus. Neoptolemus is the son of Achilles, and Achilles is the greatest hero in, in the Iliad. He's the main character. He is the embodiment of heroic nature everywhere in history, especially in the Renaissance, and, and basically everywhere. And and Hermione is marrying is marrying Achilles' son. Achilles dies in the Trojan War, even though he does not appear in the Iliad, but he actually dies. And now Hermione is marrying the son of the greatest hero. And that is a great hope for Menelaus. And in fact, in fact, it will not just be a hope, but a but a concern, a major concern. And in other stories that we can find of Greek mythology through other Greek authors of yeah, basically in the broader sphere of literature, in in, in yeah, in their culture. Uh, we can see other stories that relate to uh, to to the marriage between Hermione and Neoptolemus, and one in particular takes place in Euripides. Euripides is a very famous poet, a tragedian. He writes tragedies, that is theater, in Athens uh, towards the end of the of the fifth century BC, and he has one play uh, called Andromache. And in this play, um, sorry, I'm, I'm just referencing this, even though, even though it's so far away from Homer, this is very interesting because it's basically one of the most famous um, stories about Hermione. And in this story, Hermione is infertile, and this will raise a huge conflict in which Menelaus will get involved, uh, highly involved, because obviously he wants to ensure his, uh, his offspring. So uh, basically Hermione appears to be infertile, and they accuse another woman uh, who was actually taken from Troy as a servant, and he accused her of making potions so as so as for Hermione not to be able to have children. And 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 Menelaus is one of the main characters in the play, and he he comes into stage and starts yelling and and becomes this this raging older man that uh, this figure of the past, this amazing hero, but but that he's furious because he wants his daughter, he needs his daughter to have children. Well, A, it is a great dishonor to give a daughter that is unable to have children uh, in these epic cultures. And also, and also, the, and also the, that, that child would be his grandson. And that is crucial for Menelaus. So we can see that already at the beginning of book four, there is a crisis in the, in the family. There is a crisis where Menelaus needs, needs children. So there is Megapenthes, which, which embodies this great sorrow. And then Hermione, which embodies this great hope. This great hope, and in fact, Hermione in verse um, twelve to fourteen. There's a there's a quick description, and in, in verse fourteen, Hermione is described as having the beauty of Aphrodite, the golden, uh, the golden. Uh, this this golden uh, not only refers to the to the locks of the hair, which apparently I mean everybody portrays Helen and Aphrodite and Hermione as being blonde, but also it has to do with the apple, with the golden apple that was given that Paris gave to Aphrodite as being the most beautiful in the judgment of Paris, as I, as I told you before. So yeah, so that, that is the situation in the family, and Menelaus, of course, is, is, uh, is agitated, right? Uh, it's, um, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a crucial point in his life, this double marriage. And it's precisely now when Telemachus is going to come and visit. And uh, let's, let's begin with the theme of hospitality. Very interesting is, is how in, from verses 32 to 36... Um, I, I, I'm not going to read it for you, but basically Menelaus um, tells one of his servants, he, he's saying, uh, hey, no, we need to be hospitable because think of all the times that people took care of us. Think of all the times that people showed hospitality to us and were very generous with us. So too, we need to do the same. Um, 
So this is crucial in, in the reality of hospitality in, in the Homeric stories, is that it is it is a it is a it's a doot des this land this land saying this land aphorism of I give so that you give. There is this reciprocal nature to hospitality. It's, it's always about well there are two elements. There's the the there's the reciprocal one that hey they take care of me I take care of of them. Uh, but also the one where they where they worry that maybe a god may be visiting their their home, and so they need to take special care of those guests in case there are gods. Just like Athena was actually a guest at at in at Telemachus's palace in Ithaca, and also Nestor's palace in Pylos, uh, she was actually a guest, and it was so crucial that they showed hospitality. And these are actually lessons for the culture in the archaic age in Greece that they need to learn. Uh, that that hey we need to be hospitable not only because they are hospitable to us and we want people to treat us and we want to treat people the way that they the same way that they treat us just as well they treat us uh, not just as poorly that would be revenge uh, which of course also happens in the in the Homeric poems but but yeah like they, they do good to you then 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 do good to them but at the same time maybe they are gods and it's so important that we that we that we be careful because if they are actually gods visiting us we better take care of them. We don't want to be punished. Um, so yeah, so so Menelaus is referencing the, all his journeys and how in his journeys he was taken care of very, very well. And so he wants to do the same. Very important. In verse 60 to 63, in case you didn't realize, this is this really struck me when I read it. Uh, Telemachus and Pisistratus get to the palace in Sparta. And Menelaus orders... Um, orders his servants to to take care of him and to give them food and and a couch and and to really to really yeah to be very hospitable to them to be very kind and very generous and 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 yeah treat them quite gently and they still do not know who they are this is fabulous and they first serve them with generosity and afterwards they satisfy their curiosity they afterwards they will ask them who they are and why they are famous and why are they there no but they, they don't care about that first they first serve and then they ask the questions this is so this is so special it's just how how there are no no prejudices here it's 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 incredible it's it's hey i i serve you i don't care who you are well i do but first i will serve you and then i will ask you this is just such generosity and still nonetheless in verse 63 to 64 we see how uh how still uh menelaus can tell the 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 nobility in the faces of pacistratus and and telemachus how how he says um quote Help yourselves to to the food and welcome, and then afterward, when you have tasted dinner, we shall ask you who among men you are, for the stock of your parents can be no lost one. But you are of the race of men who are kings, whom Zeus sustains, who bear scepters. No mean men could have sons such as you are. End quote. So they take care so they he can still t he can still tell that telemachus and pacistratus are noble and this is quite common um in well yeah in in epic cultures how how nobility is accompanied by a certain physical appearance and how a king is handsome and a king is strong and and somehow the abstract the the, the psychological the, the spiritual dimension of man is related to his physical appearance, and so too goes for the with the women. The more noble, the more beautiful, and and I don't know. I mean, of, of course, this is a humongous uh, generalization. But if you think about it, and also also in movies, we we tend to do this in movies that directors tend to pick 
actors with evil faces to be the to be the evil the evil the the villains, um, and it's, it's no coincidence, right? It's it's just so natural to us to to see nobility associated with beauty and and um, and dishonor and and all the all the possible uh, defects of man and and yeah like selfishness and and yeah the evil nature of man associated with ugliness and and yeah and pollution is this this dirty thing. So yeah, so so that's so that's what happens, and then after that, while they are having their meal, Menelaus um, starts talking about riches because they they are they're uh, if I remember correctly they're praising the uh, the meal and the amazing palace, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So then Menelaus gives a little speech, and there is a, a little section that is particularly interesting in from verse ninety to ninety nine, which I am going to read. Quote. But while I was wondering those parts and bringing together much property, uh, this is Menelaus speaking, I'm sorry. Meanwhile, another man killed my brother secretly, by surprise, and by his cursed wife's treachery. So it is with no pleasure I am lord over all these possessions. You will have heard all this from your fathers, whoever your fathers are, for I have suffered much, and destroyed a household that was very strongly settled, and held many goods within it. This is Troy. I wish I lived in my house with only a third part of all these goods, and that the men were alive who died in those days in white Troy, land far away from horse-pasturing Argos. End quote. This is so beautiful. This is so beautiful how he says, well, I, I wish I just had a third, a third of all my possessions, as long as I could just see again all those that have fallen. And also and also how he says, oh, I... So it is with no pleasure. I, I hold this palace with no pleasure. It's just he's profoundly unhappy. Uh, he we we find him very similar to um, to Nestor. So this little passage that I read to you this relates to what I will, what I spoke about uh, in the earlier episode in the podcast about how the Odyssey looks back at the Iliad with a different with a different look. It's. It's a completely different perspective on war. It's all these heroes that have left war behind, and when looking back, they look back at it with, with, with sorrow, with complete sadness, with, with regret almost. But at the same time, they, they do realize that war was an opportunity for heroic deeds and for fame, and, and that is glorious, and they like that, and, and they want that. But at the same time, they, they know all the people that they have left behind all that they have suffered and and all that other people have suffered even until death and and this is and this is just so special right how the odyssey this is what this is what we talked about already how the odyssey even though it's more childish and according to some people how it is more lively and there are monsters running around still it is more mature in the way it looks back at war it is this it is this post war uh, work of art that 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 is that, that can be so um, so enlightening for many situations in 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 human history where where war has been present all throughout, and and so many times we we get we get great literature, great post-war literature, great literature that looks back at war and and reacts to it in in different ways. But here in the Odyssey, it's just it's just so it's it just so real so real the reaction it's it's both glorious and 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 melancholic but and also and also sorrowful also sad it's it's so mature so beautiful 
And, and this actually works all throughout the Odyssey. And most interestingly, uh, now that they are talking about the riches, the true riches, they're, they're saying, what are the true riches? And, and Menelaus is saying, well, the true riches is not the palace that you see in front of you. No, it's not, it's not having a, a beautiful wife. It's not, it's, not, it's not the clothes that you're wearing. It's not the food that you're eating. No, for him, the true riches, which was the initial topic of the conversation, would be to see his friends again. And, and this is what the Odyssey is trying to show us of what it means to be human. Is this mature hero who has seen life, who's grown older, and sees these two younger men, Telemachus and Pesistratus, and, and has the guts to tell them, hey, I would leave behind a third of all my possessions just so that I could see, no, sorry, I would rather have a third, no, 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 not just leave behind a third, but just have a third of all my possessions just so that I could see my friends again and just so that all those that have died could live again. It's so mature, so, so beautiful and, and so moving. And, 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 I guess, and I guess we as readers, we are identified with Telemachus and Pesistratus. We are all those young men uh, seeking that maturity uh, that are listening to Menelaus, just like we listen to Nestor. And we have such great lessons to learn. And just like they are moved by Menelaus' speech, we too are moved to uh, to meditate on his words. And and this theme of war comes up over and over again in the Odyssey. And, and most especially with regards to riches will come up in Book 11. It's one of my favorite scenes in the Odyssey. It's where, um, well, we will see this, but basically Odysseus is recounting how he, with his men, they went down to the underworld, to the to hell, basically, to the afterlife. And there they saw, well, well they, they, they see many heroes. They, they see, yeah, yeah, several, including the, the mother of Odysseus and Agamemnon. Um, but they, in particular, they see Achilles. And Achilles, uh, as I said, is the greatest hero, the main character of the, of the Iliad. Um, uh, a warrior, he's the incarnation of, of what it means to be a hero. And they see him right there. He, he's the greatest warrior, the most famous. He's, they, they see him right there, they talk to him, and Achilles will say something in the lines of, of I would rather, I'd rather be, be the humblest of all peasants than to be the king of the underworld. Because he's basically the king of the dead. They, all the warriors that have fallen, they basically make him king, if I remember correctly. And, and he tells Odysseus, Hey, but this honor is nothing compared to being alive. I would much rather be alive and be, be extremely poor and not heroic, not famous. Uh, I'd rather that than to be the king of the underworld. And this is the broader lesson of the, of the Odyssey that, that um, of part of what it means to be human is to be alive. And, and that is so important. I mean, it, it sounds very basic, but but they make it. Uh, but Homer makes it in such a beautiful way um, that it's much deeper than it seems. No, oh, it's good to be alive. No, it's not just that. But but hey, uh, hey, like death, the destruction of war, all these things are bad. And as humans, we need to fight against them. And it is just to have a sorrowful feeling, a feeling of sorrow when thinking of death. And, and to praise in all these glories the humblest of lives because that is what it means to be human. Even just to have a family, just that, or even to have just, just one-third of all the possessions that Menelaus has, that's better. That's better than dying with all the honors. And, and it's, this is so different from the Iliad, right? Where the Iliad, it's all about, well, I guess I'll just die with great honor. And, and that is also within the Odyssey. So the Odyssey wrestles with both themes, with the theme of being alive and the theme with dying with honor. And this we will see later on again 
um, I guess in book five or book six, maybe book, beginning of book six or, or, or end of book five, when Odysseus is about to die in a storm all alone in the ocean. And he will give a beautiful speech uh, regretting his situation and why he wouldn't like to die in that situation. But yeah, these are two themes that are that Homer wrestles with in the Odyssey. Uh, and they both have to do with the reaction towards war, which is the meaning of death and the meaning of life. And moving on, right after this, Menelaus uh, keeps speaking and he mentions Odysseus in front of Telemachus. And the following scene uh, takes place. Uh, I will begin with, with Menelaus' speech, verse 104, quote, But for none of all these, sorry as I am, do I grieve so much as for one who makes hateful for me my food and my sleep, when I remember since no one of the Achaeans, the Greeks, labored as much as Odysseus labored and achieved. And for him, the end was grief for him. And for me, a sorrow that is never forgotten for his sake. How he is gone so long, and we knew nothing of whether he is alive or dead. The aged Laertes, the father of, of, of Odysseus, and temperate Penelope, his wife, must surely be grieving for him, with Telemachus, whom he left behind in his house. A young child, end quote. Uh, this is the end of what Menelaus says, and now um, Telemachus will react. Quote, he spoke and he and stared in the other, the longing to weep for his father, and the tears fell from his eyes to the ground when he heard his father's name, holding with both hands the robe that was stained with purple up before his eyes, and Menelaus perceived it, and now he pondered two ways within, in mind and in spirit, whether he would leave it to him to name his father, or whether he should speak first and ask and inquire about everything." End quote. This is a very beautiful uh, narrative twist, right, that the, that the character Telemachus uh, hasn't revealed his identity to the other characters, except Pisistratus, of course, and suddenly through the very action of this scene, his identity starts coming up. And, and this will happen again with Odysseus, I rem if I remember correctly, in book 8, when he is with the Phaeacians, a different society, that they start singing about Odysseus, and then he realizes, and, and then Odysseus is right with them, but they don't know, and he starts weeping. Um, so the interesting parallelism, right, between the son and the father, who are very much alike and are, are greatly um, analogous in, in the entire Odyssey. Um, but yeah, so a great narrative twist, and, and very beautiful how this friend of your father is, is talking about your father and suddenly you just break in tears. I mean, you've been traveling, you, you've heard, you heard Nestor, uh, you, you, you just heard Menelaus, you saw the, the, the horrible situation in Ithaca back home and now you hear this man say that he does not know where Odysseus is. And this good friend talking about, about Odysseus and about your own father that, that, that you haven't met. I mean, just breaking tears. A very, very beautiful scene. And, and in fact, tears do come up quite often in this book. I, I think three times at least. This is one. Um, and, and very interesting because some, some might say, well, um, so, some people think that, think that crying is, uh, is a sign of weakness. Uh, but I think in, in the Odyssey... Well, if you think about it, just for a little bit, you you might have realized that the Odyssey is full of tears, and even the Iliad. I mean, these heroes, these these super manly, strong um, heroes that are the embodiment of courage and 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 fortitude and 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 everything, they are constantly weeping, they are constantly crying. And you might and you might think, well, uh, that's a bit weird. Or I, I mean, at least we don't see superheroes nowadays in movies crying. Um, 
and so so this might strike the reader as as well this seems like a bit of a contradiction but no i think in the odyssey well everywhere in homer the tears um the tears uh, represent this this art of fragility this this art of fragility the how how it is beautiful to be fragile and that is what it means to be a to be human to to cry for what is worth crying for and 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 so yeah so telemachus is not being is not being a kid when he cries He's simply being um, being a just man who cries for a good reason, and and it is perfectly manly, human, and and everything to cry. Um, so so yeah, so that's why we oftentimes see the heroes crying, uh, which make, makes them so much more human, right? Instead of these superheroes that are up there that we could never be like them. No no no, they cry just like you and I, and. And, and that makes them much more approachable. I, I find it very, very beautiful. But yeah, so after this, Telemachus has reacted and, and Menelaus is like, oh crap, mm, what if he is this? What if he is Telemachus? And, and then Helen will turn to Menelaus and, and actually tell, tell him, wow, um, do, do my eyes deceive me? Uh, this guy looks very much alike Odysseus and, and his son. He might be Telemachus. And then in the end, they, they do end up knowing who... Uh, who Telemachus is, is Pacistratus, I believe, uh, introduces him, and uh, but yeah, but this this again showed up again. Um, I think we've seen this in every single book. How um, how Telemachus looks like Odysseus, Nestor, the same thing happened, I believe. In, well, in book one, of course, when Athena comes uh, in the shape of of Mentes, um, he she plays in the shape of Mentes, plays the part of of oh wow, you look very much like Odysseus. Uh, so, so yeah, we, we we've seen this quite often, and makes it very beautiful. Uh, again, this joins both characters in this in this relationship of of a uh, of family, uh, one the father and the other the son, and that yeah, that, that people suspect who you are, that you very much look alike, and and that also emphasizes the link the that they had with with Odysseus, how how close Menelaus was with Odysseus, that he's able to recognize uh, he, the son of his friend, and in in fact in the line of friendship in verse one hundred and seventy eight, there's just very beautiful three lines where where Menelaus describes the the the, the friendship that he had with uh, with Odysseus, quote, and both here. We would have seen much of each other, of each other being uh, Menelaus and Odysseus. Nothing would then have separated us two in our friendship and pleasure until the darkening cloud of death had shrouded us over, end quote. Just so gorgeous, so gorgeous how, how he's saying, wow, really, um, nothing would have separated us. I, how I wish that he hadn't suffered so much, how I wish... Uh, he were back already. I, I cannot wait to see my friend again. And this is so crucial for uh, the heroic nature of the characters in the Odyssey and the Iliad, but also for us. This is what it means to be human, to, to have friends. Like a life without friendship is a is a, is a life wasted. I mean, um, and, and, and these heroes teach us these things and how in the midst of these huge wars, these huge journeys, these huge dangers, um, friendship is very much at the heart of, of, of it all. Because friendship is, even though it, it seems unimportant in the scale of, of these heroic affairs, it, in, in reality, it is, it is, it is at, the, at, the, at the nucleus, it is right at the core of, 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 yeah, of what it means to be human. And Homer emphasizes it over and over again. And finally, just just to add two more notes to this, um, yeah, to this first part of book four, to this analysis of the first part of book four, since it's that long. Um, one thing in the line of of war, of of how war is such a sad is such a sad reality, 
is the scene where where Paisistra just, uh, just just breaks into tears suddenly. And this is very similar to Telemachus. So in, in fact, we already see another parallelism, right, between Telemachus and Pesistratus, who are seen as equals in these um, in this friendship between both, uh, since Nestor wanted wanted to to send his own son Pesistratus with with Telemachus, and this is what we've been talking about: how they are both young men, same age, uh, and one of them grew up with a father, Nestor, Pesistratus with Nestor, and the other Telemachus all alone without Odysseus being home, and how they are very much alike; they, they're in the same situation. And now again, we we see we see them both crying suddenly at the conversation that is taking place in the palace, and 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 Pisistratus is crying because he's remembering his brother. Very very beautiful uh, moment, where, uh, where yeah, where, where he just where he just weeps for his brother, and he also says a, a very beautiful quote, um, a, a very beautiful phrase about tears and hope. This is the second instance where where tears come up, uh, or the third. I, I might have missed the second, but um, quote. This is verse hundred and ninety three. For my part, I have no joy in tears after dinner time. There will always be a new dawn tomorrow. Yet I can have no objection to tears for any mortal who dies and goes to his destiny. But uh, it, is, it just is the beautiful phrase of "there will always be a new dawn tomorrow." How how there's always hope. So let let us let us just stand up. Of of course, I am crying, and I realize that I'm crying, and maybe tears. Um, and maybe maybe there's no meaning to tears in in this situation, but there because there will be a new dawn tomorrow. But but still, these tears are worth it. So he realizes that there is hope that that that, that there will be a new tomorrow, and still he chooses to cry. It's just this beautiful relationship between sorrow and hope, and and yeah. So 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 he talks about his brother, about Antilochus, and and very interesting because uh, it is exactly the same. As as Odysseus, because I I believe that Pisistratus did not meet his son uh, his brother, because Pisistratus is is the is the similar age to Telemachus, which means that he was a baby, a very very young baby when when Nestor and therefore with his brother they left to Troy, um so. So yeah, so so basically he hasn't met his brother either. So this is similar to Telemachus with Odysseus. Uh, Telemachus hasn't met Odysseus uh, and still mourns for him. And Pisistratus hasn't met his brother, Antilochus, and still mourns for him. Uh, just just an, an interesting parallelism as well. And and yeah, and also just in case you didn't know, Antilochus is not a famous guy in the Iliad. Uh, but the Iliad is also full of, of, of middle class, of middle class um, characters. So Antilochus is an example. There are all these other minor heroes. They're usually referred to as, as minor heroes. These other heroes that, of course, they, they do get a name in the poem. because It's full of names. And they do get their scene and, and the, the moment where they fight. But they are not the main characters. But they're still famous. So here they appear as a, as a, as a sequel to the Iliad. And with this final idea, I think we've reached a good stopping point. So this concludes the first part of the of book four of the commentary of book four, uh, because as I said earlier, it's it's um, it's quite long. It's a very long book, and therefore I will be dedicating two episodes for it so that um, we don't end up creating a, an episode that is an hour and thirty minutes long. So I uh, hope you enjoyed, hope you're learning a lot, and hope you're hope that you're enjoying more and more these incredible book. Uh, and this incredible work as a whole. By book, I mean book four. And by work, I mean the entire Odyssey. And um, and yeah, so just keep reading. Keep thinking about it. I mean, try try to find all these ideas in it uh, because I think, I think it will enrich your reading um, 
enormously and and also train your train your mind to to be able to read other great works of literature which um in the surface they can be just pretty but when you start digging a little bit through all their layers because indeed they have a lot of layers you can start um you can start unveiling a lot of truths in them and and discovering a lot of depth in these uh in these narratives so uh thank you very much for listening and i'll catch you on the next one